your state, your team, your show. This is Sports Nightly. Two wideouts to the left. Mills in the backfield with Martinez. Adrian gets the snap, gives it off to Mills. Mills picks away. He's to the 40, 45, 50, 45, 40, 35, 30. Tight rope to the sideline, steps out of bounds inside the 30-yard line. Dedrick Mills has been a man today here in Lincoln. Now, let's check the pulse of Husker Nation with your hosts, Greg Sharp and Ben McLaughlin. Thank you. Welcome. Another night of Sports Nightly here on the Husker Sports Network. So glad that you've chosen to spend a few minutes with us as we flip the calendar. Officially, Bobby Bonilla Day, Ben McLaughlin. So happy Bobby Bonilla Day to you. I feel like Bobby Bonilla should uh, find a way to <laughs> contribute and, 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 and spread some of that wealth to to others the way that he the way that this uh this is going what a what a is that the smartest contract in history i mean <laughs> i mean good grief this guy hasn't played baseball in 20 years and is getting a million a year and he will through 2035 to to fill everybody in who maybe go what, what the heck are they talking about there bobby bonilla who signed a long-term deal with the new york mets he was one of baseball's better players during the 90s uh so the mets gave him they they thought they were being um revolutionary in their deal with Bobby Bonilla. So they signed him to this. Instead of giving him a big lump sum contract right away, they said, we're going to give you this 20, what ends up being like a 35-year contract, basically a lifetime contract. And you're going to get $1.1 million on July 1st of every year, moving forward to the year 2035. So in sports circles, July 1 has become known as Bobby Bonilla Day. And so good for Bobby. One point, I think it's $1.19 million is what Bobby Bonilla, what was deposited in his bank account today. So good for him. Man, well it's, imagine, imagine that time every year where you're just like, you know, got another, got another mill coming in. So, you know, figure out what we want to do, how we want to spend it. And it's right around 4th of July. So it's a good time. And man, that's Brilliant. Wish I had a contract set up like that. Ben, those last two weeks of June have to be excruciating for Bobby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure he's he's hurting with the way that that uh, that, that deal is, is set up. But, man, that's, that's, that's enviable is what that is. Yeah. Got to be the most bizarre contract ever signed in professional sports. And you notice they, they didn't do really any more of those. I mean, those lifetime deals – uh, that was kind of a rage for a while. I think agents kind of thought it was a cool thing. Probably great for agents. They're still getting commission. Whoever his agent was, I don't know if it's Boros or who it was, but he's probably still getting commission every July off of that deal. That is just crazy. Uh, Josh had this in the ticker that the uh, word is coming out this afternoon that the NFL is going to shorten their preseason from four down to two games. And, heck, it may go to zero before it's all said and done. They may just say, yeah, let's not even do that. Let's just kick this thing off in September and go. How much does that pain you to hear that the NFL is cutting preseason back to two games? I think it's a good trial run for what we all hope takes to actually takes place is, you know, limiting that, that preseason. It just seems to be drug out. Nobody really pays attention to those games anyway. I think if if that thing's cut down to, uh, to just two, I think, it, number one, it adds some intrigue. And I think it's going to give the teams and the, and the franchises and the front office enough, still enough game film to – to look at those guys and, and, and those, those borderline guys to see if they, you know, deserve a roster spot or not, which is a, a large point of the, you know, a large point of the preseason. Um, 
and I, I can't wait. To, I'm not, we're going to get Jeremiah on at some point in time. He's coming up later on this hour with his this week's edition of the Husker Huddle with Divina Zigbo. But I'd love his take about how do NFL players feel about the preseason. I mean, I guess if you're an undrafted free agent, you're trying to make a team, you want every rep you can. You want every chance to impress somebody, whether it's your coaching staff or somebody else around the league, to get yourself a foot in the door to make a team. If you're a vet and you're pretty comfortably having your deal, I got to imagine you don't get very fired up at all to play those preseason football games. We don't see the starters play very much at all in these preseason games. And why would you? If you're a coach, if you're an owner or GM, why are you risking your starting quarterback out there in a game that doesn't count? I mean, I think you just want to make sure that they're dialed in, right? You get good. If you got a new coordinator, break in that playbook. Got some new rookies. You got some new personnel. Make sure everything's clicking against a real opponent, not against yourself in training camp. Um, so I think for uh, you know the, the the large scheme of things, it's nice to have for coaches anyway, because as we find out, and no matter what sport, coaches always seem to they they don't have enough time to get ready for the season. I don't think that's the case in the uh, National Football League, but. You know, we will uh, get used to this, I think, having two of those preseason games knocked down. And uh, I think, you know, to answer your question, it's got to depend on what your roster status is. If you're if you're a guy that is a, a bona fide starter in the NFL, you obviously don't take it too seriously. But, you know, if you're a guy fighting for a, a job, uh, then you better take it very seriously. And we've seen in hard knocks where, you know, it oftentimes comes down to five or six plays that you get in those games that determine who's going to win those last spots. Yeah. All right. Um, let's turn it back to the college game now. Today, Penn State Athletic Director Sandy Barber had a press conference, of, of one of those Zoom press conferences with everything. The um, Sandy Barber said, and we brought this up a couple nights ago, I think this was the night you were playing around on Madden. We talked about spring football. Would that be... And, you know, is that, a, is that an option for everything? And would that be the best option? Maybe looking ahead to the next six, eight months, fighting this virus, hoping for a vaccine by late 2020 or early 2021. Would, would starting a, a season in the spring maybe be the best option? Well, that question was raised to Penn State AD Sandy Barber today, who called that move a last resort for fitting the season safely into the calendar. Quote, one of the biggest challenges – it's probably the biggest one in my mind is the proximity to next season and, frankly, losing a second spring football. Uh, if perhaps we're willing to have a shortened season, again, the category of something better is better than nothing, that may not be a problem at all. There's no doubt there's been a little bit of pessimism here in the last couple of weeks that we really hadn't had for probably four to six weeks. I think that's part of the ebb and flow of this virus. Obviously, my hope is that maybe as people start looking at the masking and social distancing again and all the precautions and recommitting to the seriousness of this, we'll see a flattened out again. So there's Penn State's AD, who certainly carries some cachet. I mean, Penn State's one of the, the blue bloods of college football. Kind of throwing some water on the thought of a spring season, and and all those points are valid, Ben. I mean, if you have to go to that, you do it if you if that's the only choice you have. But if you end a season in May and you want to start another one up in September, that is a really quick t- turnaround for student athletes. It is, and I think that's why why it was said. You know, if you think about it chronologically, th- that would be a last resort. I I, I, I think. Um, not necessarily a last resort in a sense that 
uh, it's that or they don't play. But a last resort in a sense that, you know, what we've been talking about, Greg, instead of just saying, you know, back when we didn't have much information on the virus or how long that it would be affecting things, instead of just um, coming out and blowing a whole season away without really understanding it, you, you know, postpone it, suspended a week, suspended a month, suspended a couple months, and then, you know, if it's too gone, too far gone, then maybe you, you suspend the season or cancel the season. I, I think if, if you're taking that mindset to where, you know, you kind of reach those barriers one thing at a time, uh, that would be the last resort to get football in because if, if you're not playing it in the fall, when are you going to play it? You're going to play it in the spring. You're definitely not going to play it in the summer. So from that standpoint, it makes sense, and I understand that, logistically it would be a nightmare to try and make a fall sport like football go in the spring but i don't necessarily agree that taking away spring football if you were to ask to pull the coaches and say okay would you rather play a fall season that matters or play a spring season to get yourself ready for the next season i have a hard time believing any competitive head coach will say give me spring ball over fall uh, spring practice over a spring season that would actually count towards records. I think everybody wants to compete on the field. So I don't necessarily agree from that standpoint that that would be a reason to deter them from not playing in the spring. I think there are a lot of other reasons that would be on the forefront other than, well, we don't have spring ball to prepare for next year because Nebraska's not going to have a spring ball to get ready for this year. There are a lot of other schools in your own conference that aren't going to have a spring ball as it is. So you can get by without it. You can definitely get prepared for a season without it. Do you want to have it? Of course. That's 20 practices that you get that you wouldn't otherwise. But to, to call that as a reason why this wouldn't be moved to the spring, um, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. And I think the athletic departments, Greg, if it comes down to having a spring football season that may be eight games, ten games, whatever, uh, they're going to take that because I don't know how – the budgets could survive. I mean, if that's what you have to do to keep your athletic department afloat, you're going to do it, and you'll make it work with injuries turning around in September or how you fit your incoming freshmen coming in, how you get them ready. That stuff you can deal with and you can figure out, but you can't figure out how to come up with $150 million overnight to keep your operations running the way that they are. Yeah, no doubt. How, how many players do you – if we had to go to that and have to play in the spring, how many players sit out? If you're Justin Fields, if you're Trevor Lawrence, these high-profile quarterbacks who are going to be top five picks in the NFL draft next April or May, whenever their draft is, how many of those guys go, yep, sorry, I'm done. I'm not putting my this close to my payday. I, I, I'm not going to risk it at all. I, I think you'd have a handful of, of the biggest stars in college football say, not me, I'm done. You would, but that's the power of being able to make your own decisions. You know, they, it's the same thing that they do in the bowl games. You know, that there are guys that set out the bowl games for that same reason. That's on them, you know, and, you know, you can't really control that if you're a coach, if, if that's how they feel about it and, and they want to put, you know, to put a bump bluntly, put themselves and their future ahead of your team, then that's fine. You can't really control them. They're, they're athletes making their own choices. How many times have we seen athletes, you know, already in the last couple of years use their four games not like their situation pull the plug on it uh, redshirt the year and then transfer out we've already seen that trend so 
there is no doubt college athletes who already kind of feel taken advantage, like they're getting taken advantage of. Uh, this is a way for them to kind of take some of the power back too, especially if you're one of those projected high picks. But I think at the same time, you're going to have a handful that are wanting to prove themselves that they are first round picks um, or, or, or not even in the first round, but draftable prospects to, to get in the NFL. Uh, you know, if, again, I don't think the athletic departments much care if, if you're Ohio state and you're going, okay, do I play a season without Justin Fields or do I lose 95% of my budget for the next year? You're going to play without Justin Fields. You're just going to do it. There's not one player in college football that an athletic director would put over uh, over their budget or over their, you know, taking care of, of, of their people and, and the, their operations. There just isn't. There isn't one single player in college football that's worth $150 million to your, to your department. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I, again, I think it is a last resort. It's a good read again on CBSSports.com. Ben Kirchival wrote the story quoting Sandy Barber, Penn State's AD, saying spring football is the last resort. I'm sure it is. The, the end of the article kind of buried at the end of it is the consensus is it's hard to imagine going through fall without some college football happening this fall. That's kind of in the camp that I'm in. I think we're going to see college football. Are we going to see 12 games? Don't know. How many people are going to be in the stands? Don't know. <laughs> is it going to be clunky? Yes, probably. Is it going to be the, the teams on the current schedule that you see Nebraska play? Don't know. That could be interesting, too. So still a lot of unanswered questions about it. But, again, I think – when you see Sandy Barber's comments, you go, okay, that, these ADs are talking. They want to do everything humanly possible in getting some games in in the fall when the, when the sport is traditionally played. All right, those are some of the things we're dealing with here on the show tonight. You want to be a part of this one, 866-HUSKER-1. When we come back, we'll have this week's edition of the Husker Huddle. Jeremiah Searles will sit down with former Husker, now an NFL running back, and Divine Azigbo. That's next. Welcome back to another edition of Husker Huddle presented by Sap Brothers, where they say, welcome, be our guest. Today, we are lucky enough to be joined by Jacksonville Jaguars current running back, Divino Zigbo, former Cornhusker running back and a good buddy of mine. Divine, how you doing, my friend? Doing good, man. How are you? I'm doing well, staying here in Lincoln, trying to beat the heat. It's nice and hot outside, but I can take it better than uh, the cold, I think. So I think that's one thing that um, is going to definitely continue to work with us here in Lincoln. Where are you at now? What are you up to nowadays? Uh, yes, I recently got back to Jacksonville a couple weeks ago for uh, the quarterback, and Garner wanted to have a little skills get-together, so we did that. And then, uh, you know, I initially planned to be down here during that time. So I said, if I'm going to go, I'm just going to, you know, get planted in. So now I'm in a transition period between, you know, that and getting my own place. So, I mean, like I said, this is a different year for football, right? I mean, everything's going to be different. But last year you got to experience rookie year, which is the biggest grind ever. You just, it's nonstop. But now you've got to experience an offseason, and these OTAs were obviously different. But how have you handled the transition this year from regular OTAs to virtual OTAs? Uh, it's way more like online class as if you know what I mean, just having to you know, make sure you're up on time, listening to it's more like presentations and uh, information just kind of thrown at you. So it's a little bit of a it's a little bit different. But, you know, being fresh out of college kind of helped me out and, you know, say I understand what they're, the messages and the information they're trying to give us. So it wasn't terrible, but it was definitely different. Well, we haven't really got a chance here in Husker Nation to really catch up with you since you left Nebraska here. So I want to rewind a little bit back to your rookie year. You go undrafted to the Saints. 
you spend a camp with them um, and you end up getting traded. But what was that whole experience like down in uh, New Orleans, getting to play with guys like Drew Brees and other incredible names down there? I mean, they have a heck of a running back room down there as well. Oh, yeah, it was definitely like, it was definitely like super informative. Like, I think that was the best place for me to start my career and just see that organization, like I said, with those stars, with those, like from the field to the coaching office and just seeing how that organization is ran and how they all carry themselves. I definitely think that definitely, uh, I definitely put my head in the perspective and like kind of show me what it should look like and what it could look like type deal. So it's not the only way to do it, but just being in such a structured organization that definitely taught me a lot. And I'm going to like, keep those lessons no matter where I go. And it's also helped me here while I'm in Jacksonville. I got to ask, you got any cool Drew Brees stories? I mean, he's such an intriguing individual. I, I love him. I think he's really awesome. I've met him a few times. And I always ask people because they say he's just such an excellent teammate. Yeah, he's dope. I remember just like, you know, I remember like watching videos of him like doing that little dance he does and then seeing person yep. for the first time. Like, oh, wow. I guess it's kind of like, that's, it's weird. You never, it's, it's an iconic move you've seen on screen or you see it in person. You're like, okay, that's how it's done. I see it. Well, so, so you go through camp with them. Um, you get you get released and you get picked up by the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now, I've had to do that one time when I got traded to the Vikings where you show up in a brand new organization, you show up in a brand new building, brand new room, and your head's just spinning a million miles an hour. How did you handle that transition and do it well, I might add, to where you played fairly early once you got to Jacksonville? It was, uh, you know, I, I think it was, like I said, a, bunch, a few of the lessons I learned from New Orleans being that staff, like just trying to, you know, make that team under their under their guidelines that kind of helped me transition. But then also just like when it came to the on-the-field work, I would get tested to a lot of the stuff I learned my senior year. Hmm. Just like the way I went about practicing and stuff. But like I went hard at practice. I was like the scout team running back. So like I'm, I told myself every day before practice, I said, I'm, I'm going out there. I'm going to try to kill everybody on the start defense. Like, <laughs> it's, it's me or that. And, it just, you know, having the attitude and being able to practice hard helped me learn the offense and it helped the coaches have trust in me physically to go out there and perform if I needed to. So I want to go back to something you just said there. You said it started at practice. I mean, practice is such a physical thing. Is that something that you felt like Coach Frost staff brought to Nebraska? Is that physicality piece to it? I just, uh, uh, the physicality, but definitely just like the intensity as a thing, like just the overall speed and how the players were moving. That, like, that was the first time I ever practiced like that, other than maybe, you know, a few good ones in high school and uh, under Riley. We, they just didn't structure those practices that mm -hmm. way. But Coach Frost came and, uh, you know, did that, implemented it. It definitely took the team a while to like, get used to it and know what they're talking about. But you could definitely feel it. And I definitely saw it in players once we did get it things are looking good for everybody. So you think that the way that Frost has the program running right now, I know people always are curious, but that is really preparing guys for taking that jump like yourself into the NFL? Uh, I mean, under the one year I saw it, it definitely, everything they did definitely helped me. So I, I have to say yes, especially just going from my perspective. That's awesome. Well, you finished out your first year there in Jacksonville. You head into your first offseason. What was your first offseason like? I know it, I mean, obviously 2020 has been the year everyone wants to forget about. But, I mean, that first offseason that you get is, is a really good time. It's a really good time to kind of finally take a deep breath from the grind that was rookie year, where it's a really a year-long, like, sprint. Um, where How did you spend your offseason? Uh, so, initially, I, I came back home for a little bit, and then I ended up, you know, just kind of get an apartment close to where I was training. So I was in Dallas spending my time. I just made sure I tried to take some trips. Mm -hmm. So every time there was an opportunity to do something, 
you know, I'd schedule it, plan it, whatever, and then go chip, come back and work out. Like, so I really started my off-season workouts almost maybe like three weeks after the season ended, but I made sure, I was like, I'm going to break it up and, you know, not destroy my body over an extremely long time working out, but also not being able to go out there and do have fun and go see things and meet people and stuff. So I try to balance all like that and, you know, until the Rona hit, so... The Rona, man. The dang Rona ruined everything. So, well, what does year two look like for you? You're going into you're going into your second year now with the with the Jacksonville Jaguars. You're really looking to have a breakout season. In uh, in my opinion, I think that you're you're really poised for that. But what are some expectations that you've put on yourself, or maybe some expectations that you've talked with your coaches about? Um, just being able to to earn more playing time on teams. And then that transition into me getting on the field, just kind of the way our room's set up and, you know, how they like to do things. It's just I'm, I'm going to have to make sure I'm a, I'm a four-court teamer, be on everyone, and just be able to be productive on that because that's definitely going to lead me to the opportunities to get carried and stuff like that. That was one thing I definitely had to learn going into my senior, uh, rookie year. Mm-hmm. But uh, definitely what, you know, the coaches will like to talk to, like players like me, guys like that. I, think I have a – I can confidently say, like, you know, they're hopeful for me, but – you know, it's hinged on how I perform outside of the running back role, you know, just make sure I can play the whole game of football so that opportunity to play running back is, you know, widened. So that's definitely yeah, I mean, the more you yeah. can do, the more you can do, the longer you can stay. I mean, I think that that's something that every every young football player that gets in the NFL needs to make best friends with the special teams coach and just do, I mean, whatever he says. So, I mean, great to hear that you're saying that. Let's switch gears a little bit here. Talk a little Husker football. No spring ball. Um, very limited training camp for what it sounds like, and I mean, a hopeful season. Take yourself back two years. If you were sitting in the position of some of these guys right now, what would you be thinking? How would you be trying to handle all this, especially, say, your senior year when you're going to be considered a leader on this team? I would – in my mind, there's, there's no way the ball's not going to happen. So that's how I approach it, especially – I'm very, I'm happy they get to go back now and kind of all be together instead of everybody being on their respective homes or whatever. So like that would definitely give me more motivation. Just I would want to be around the guys and – just prepare like we're definitely gonna have a season it might be a little later or start a little later or however they can plan on doing it but definitely like locking in your mind that we're going to have one and train like that yeah i mean the chances of season not happening in my opinion would be disastrous right i mean i think for for everyone i mean i can't imagine guys that are gonna be hopeful for the nfl i mean the community here in lincoln especially so i definitely think the season is going to have to happen but with this team, this is a young team, um, Zig, as you know, I mean, you've watched them. How was your first year of fandom sitting there actually watching a Husker game versus playing a Husker game? <laughs> it was interesting. Like, the few that I – because, like, our Saturdays were our old uh, Fridays, so it was kind of like a big transition yep. day. But games that I got to catch and watch and, you know, like, maintain live, it was just – it was tough. Like, I was watching, like – I. My heart was racing. I was more nervous than like oh, yeah. I've ever been here. Like I was like talking trash to my friends. Like it's just, it's like a whole different. It's a whole different feel. Like now, I'm, this isn't the first time I've had like a true college football team. Because even coming into Nebraska, you know, like I just I liked college football mm-hmm. as a whole. And I, but this is my first year with an individual team. Like I don't care about any anybody else. <laughs> so it was it's, like the stakes seemed so much higher, and like I just I loved it though. It was great to watch the boys get after it and uh, 
and I'm just definitely excited to do it again. Yeah, I mean, we got some. We got Mills coming back, which is big. I mean, Mo Washington leaving is going to hurt. But what what are your thoughts on this running back room for Nebraska this upcoming year? Uh, I think, like you said, I think Mills he's going to have to be a leader. Him and Wandell, I, I bet they. Uh, you know, I'm pretty sure they'll get him back there. I think those are guys that you know, are veterans in the system, know what the coaches' personalities and stuff are going to be able to help the young guys get adjusted and acclimated. So we definitely just need those two to step up on a you know off the field player to player basis. It, even if they already have, I don't necessarily know, but you know I, I think that could be huge for the room. Absolutely. Before all right, last thing before we get out of here, what are your expectations for this football team this year? I think every everyone has a different expectation, but I'm starting to get a general feel of what people are thinking about 2020 for the Huskers. As you look at this year three Scott Frost system now, he's got his guys kind of in place. What are you looking to expect and maybe just see from this team this year? I kind of I just want to see the offense that I expect. I know like I know the guys in the room. I know the guys in the offensive rooms and coaches and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. I just, I, they're, they're gonna get players in position. So I definitely want you know the team to be able to capitalize when those opportunities come. Because I definitely this offense is you know it's explosive, and I don't think we saw enough of it, but it's definitely there. Awesome. Well, Ziggy, we appreciate you joining us here on Husker Huddle, presented by Sap Brothers, where the top priority is to keep guests and teammates safe. Sap Brothers is offering full service at the pump as our nation relies now more than ever on our drivers, farmers, to provide essential to our communities. Sap Brothers is committed to serving you. Ziggy, I just want to thank you again for joining us, man. We're excited to watch you get this season kicked off down there in Jacksonville. Stay safe, stay healthy, my man, and go Big Red. Yes, sir. Appreciate it. Go Big Red. Absolutely. See you, Ziggy. Famous Dave's Face-Off. They score at the Face-Off! Famous Dave's, America's favorite barbecue, offers award-winning, mouth-watering, house-smoked barbecue for pickup, curbside, or delivery. Order three ways, online at FamousDave's.com, through the Famous Dave's app, or call your nearest location in Lincoln, Omaha, or Bellevue. Famous Dave's, locally and veteran-owned. Let's go! Mano a mano. You, me, right here. Right now. Now, here are your hosts, Josh Hilkeman and Austin Orman. That's right. We have a new co-host for this week. I don't know if it's permanent or not, but at least for this week, we've got Austin instead of Brett. So say hi to uh, Austin Orman, guys. Hi, Austin. (laughs) Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Ben got rid of Brett, finally. Finally happened. Pushed him out the door. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Brett, Brett was really mouthy the first time we played this, and then when we kind of threatened to make him play it, he was very part. He was very, uh, <laughs> you know, compliant. He backed off, didn't he? He did. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. He sure did. Hit him where it hurts. <laughs> exactly. Well, if you'll remember last week, Greg came away Epic. with probably the most exciting uh, win in Famous Dave's Faceoff history, four to three. It came down right to the last question, and that was a, a close one too. So. Ben, Didn't you, we answer the same number of ones last week? Like yes. Like we were dead even? That's right. You both got 13 correct answers on the week, which has never happened before. You guys have never gotten the exact same amount. So that was uh, about as close as it could possibly get. So, Greg, you're now up 7-6 to six as we enter the 14th ever Whew. edition of Famous Dave's Face-Off. And they said it wouldn't last. <laughs> <laughs> we might even start getting uh, calls for a renewal for a second season of this. And then we'll have to figure out 
when we end season one and all that yeah. stuff. But that's that's a ways down the road. We can figure that out when when the time comes. All right, let's uh let's dive right in. Question number one of for tonight. Who were the three different players who scored points for Nebraska football in the 2014 Gator Bowl against Georgia? Greg. Oh, Greg in first. Let's go Quincy Anunwa. Show me Quincy Anunwa. Correct. I'll Pass play it. it. All right, play. Um, Tommy Armstrong. How about Tommy Armstrong? He was not one that scored a touchdown. Or scored points, I mean. So Anuno did have two touchdowns in that game, by the way. Yeah, the other ninety-nine yarder. <laughs> exactly. One yeah. of them. Yeah, and then one we've got in our promo that have been going on there. All right. Um, so no Quincy. How about Amir Abdullah? Show me Amir Abdullah. Okay, so you've got two of the three. With one strike. Patrick Smith. Show me Pat Smith. That's right. You got it. You got the three. So Pat Smith kicked a field goal and had three extra points. Amir Abdullah had one touchdown. Anun had two touchdowns. Now Scourge won. Greg, you're up one nothing. Gentlemen, sweep I knew, on I, that one there. I just was, I knew it was a kicker, and I'm, I'm backdating. <laughs> okay, was it Drew Brown yet, or was it that year, that odd year that Patrick Smith yep. was a kicker? So. There you go. You got it. Was indeed the odd year of Pat Smith. So, question number two: Name the five college and professional teams that Cam Newton has been a part of in his ben, career. Greg. Whoa, Ben. <laughs> ben. Auburn. How Show about me, Auburn. I'll play it. Passing or playing, Ben? Playing? Okay. Read the full read the full question, please. Since Ben jumped in there so quick. You got it all. It's name the five college and professional teams that Cam Newton has been a part of in his career. Okay. Let's get the tough one out of the way. Blinn Junior College. Blinn College. Show me Blinn. Very nice. Very, very nice. Yeah, that one was a... Uh... That one was tough, and I think this is the only. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go. We'll go with the Panthers. Let's get these ones out of the way. Panthers. Did Cam Newton play for the Carolina <laughs> Panthers? Yes or no? He did. Yes, he did. Believe it or not. <laughs> How about the New England the Patriots? There, ben? The Patriots is Cam Newton a Patriot? Has he been a Patriot? Will he be a Patriot? <laughs> yes, indeed. All right, that's four out of five. Okay, and the last one, it was a Florida school. Is either Miami or Florida. Give me the Gators. Give him the Gators. Will the Gators be the answer? Five for five. Light work of that one to tie it up, Ben. Nice work. Impressive. That was impressive. Good work. I wasn't I was I assumed that you guys would get Blinn College and Florida, but those were the two tough ones, obviously. I couldn't remember if it was Miami or Florida, but Miami just didn't sound right. Yep. Good work on that. Right. Move on to question number three as we're tied at one between Greg and Ben. Name the six different teams that have held the top ranking in the preseason. AP College Football Poll since 2010. Ben. Okay, Ben first. Ben. Alabama. Show me Alabama. 
So they're the only one that has held it more than once. They've done it five times, so Alabama is a good guess. I'll play it. Okay. Georgia. Show me Georgia. What? Since when? Since 2010 have they been in the AP College Football preseason top 25. Or number one in the number one number one. What year? What year right. was number that one. that they weren't then? Because they that they were right there. Man, that's okay. Right. Um, Don't get flustered, Ben. They yeah. were they were number one on Dan's preseason sports nightly preseason. Right, the sports nightly preseason yeah, top yeah. twenty-five. That no, that's, they, that's they, different. There was one year where they were definitely number one in the AP. <laughs> definitely number one. Uh, LSU, show me LSU. All right, I knew this was going to be difficult, but I didn't think that. Clemson. Show me Clemson. There we go, back on the right track. They did it in 2019, so last year was when they did it. Oklahoma. Okay, show me Oklahoma. They did it in 2011. Ohio State. Show me Ohio State. On a roll now. One left. Two left. Two left. Two left. Yep. Two left. You've gotten Alabama. They're the only one that has done it multiple times. They've done it five. You've gotten Clemson, which is 2019, Ohio State 2015, and Oklahoma 2011. So you're missing two. How about the Seminoles? Show me Florida State. I don't know that they were number one. Um, hmm. Greg preparing for a I, steal possibility. I think I I got it between two. Okay. Greg wants you to name both of them. By the way, I'm really pissed it's not Georgia. <laughs> well, I mean, there's nothing I can do <laughs> no, about can it. Um, <laughs> okay, give me Cam Newton's Auburn Tigers. Show me the Auburn Tigers. Correct. So that's now three strikes over to Greg for the steal opportunity. And there's only one left. There's right? just one You've left. Got, so you got five out of the six. Correct. Yep. It's tough. I'm be- I'm between two. I'm between Notre Dame. Okay. And then I'm kind of thinking Oregon. One of those years with Chip Kelly might have been a preseason number one, but I ah, that seems a little out there that that would be right. So give me the Irish. Show me the Notre Dame Fighting Irish for the steal. Incorrect. So the team you guys are missing was 2012. The USC Trojans were the AP Uh, number one team in the preseason. Wow. Notre Dame was my other team, Greg. Oh, wow. You guys are on the same page, even if it was the wrong one. So, Ben, you're up two to one now. That was Matt Barkley's unfinished business year, and the yeah. business he had to finish was going seven and six. It's still five unfinished. And four in He's still living right. it, his life unfinished. <laughs> Cat can't <True>. feel good. <laughs> Hopefully, he gets some closure at some time. On to question number four. So, who are the three most recent winners on the men's side of the Nathan's hot dog eating contest? Ben. Okay. Ben. Joey the Mouth Chestnut. Show me Joey the Mouth Chestnut. Well done. Can you get the other two? I'm going to play it. I don't know that I can get it, but I don't know that Greg's got got the steal here. Okay. <laughs> Fair Kobayashi. enough. Kobayashi? 
Galaxy Brain. <laughs> Show me Kobayashi. Ben. Very nice. Showing off your Two hot dog eating contest knowledge right now. I'm, I, that is all the contestants I got. I'll say uh, Ben McLaughlin. <laughs> <laughs> Show me Ben McLaughlin. That's one strike. I do a guy that, made an appearance. A guy that might be able to compete in this contest based on his Twitter photo from an hour ago, Nate Rohr. <laughs> Show me Nate Rohr. All right. Um, Not quite. Bill Smith. Show me Mr. Bill Smith. <laughs> Is William Smith up there? <laughs> no. Man in black himself. Not so, up there. Greg, you get a chance to steal here. No clue. No clue. Bozo the, cl- Bozo the Clown. <laughs> Show me Bozo the Clown. <laughs> It is not Bozo the Clown. It is someone by the nickname of Megatoad, Matthew Stoney. Currently the number three ranked competitive eater in Major League Eating. He won it in 2015. At that time, Joey Chestnut had only won it eight times. And those three, Chestnut, Kobayashi, and Stoney, are the only three winners dating back all the way to 2001. I I wouldn't have come up with that name. I would have got, I obviously got two of the three. Yeah, that was... (laughs) <laughs> Good strategy by you, Ben, because I, you got the two ones that were the most obvious, and then that's all you needed. So up three so to one now. The Hickman Harriers three one lead. Yeah. See if I can blow it again this week. Well, we'll see. That's <laughs> true. You were up three to one going into uh, question number five last week, and Greg came back to win. So there's always a shot. So we go to question number five. Who are the three most recent winners of the Major League Baseball Home Run Derby? Ben. Okay. Ben. Uh, Aaron Judge. How about Aaron Judge? One of the three. Epic home run derby last year. I'll play it. Okay. John Carlo Stanton. Show me John Carlo, or Mike, as he's been known before. Hmm. Not John Carlo. Love how you're going with a couple mammoths to start yeah, off, right. though. <laughs> how about Cody Bellinger? How about Cody Bellinger? <laughs> Incorrect. Got two left to there get. Was, there was one that was... There was one that was pretty obscure. Um... Oh, uh, got Pete Alonzo last year. Show me Pete Alonzo. That was, I thought you were going to overlook it because you are like epic derby last year and then didn't mention the winner. So, yes, Pete yeah. Alonzo was the one that ended up winning it. Uh, he and uh, Vlad Jr., right? Yeah, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. That's right. Set the record for most home runs in a single home run derby. He hit like 90-something. Well, John Carlo must have won it the year before. I know you won a Cespedes one-one recently, but that was that was too long ago. I feel like it was somebody from the Reds. I 
because I know somebody I know somebody obscure won it like recently. Yeah. But I don't know that I can come up Could with be. a name. Can neither confirm nor deny that until you give me a name. Uh, who was that? Who was that? Uh, who was that guy that for the Reds that just mashed a few years ago? Adam Duvall. Ooh, interesting. All right, is that your guess? So that's not right. <laughs> if I get an interesting, that's not. It. <laughs> All right, that's your guess, and it is not correct. I, it's a good guess, but it's it's wrong. Greg, you get a chance at a steal to stay alive. Give me Mike Trout. Show me Mike Trout for the steal. You are along the right line there, Greg, but it's Bryce Harper, the star oh, really? of the other league. Yeah, he won it in 2018. Okay, who was the red? We got to look. Who then was the Reds guy that won it? Somebody Todd from Frazier. The, the Todd, Todd Frazier. Yep. And he's actually participated multiple times because he's up there. Like he might have been in three different ones because I was looking up the totals earlier today, and he's like has the second most like career home runs in home run derby history. Man. Frazier won in 15, Stanton in 16. So Stanton, Stanton did win it. I, yep. I know he, it was the, was that the Marlins yep. Park where he was just mashing? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's it was right. was in San Diego. Or San Diego. And then he also mentioned. Judge. Judge was the one that won at a Marlins Park, I think. Mentioned Yohannes Cespedes. I remember you and I watching that together. That was probably like back in 2012, Ben. That was, yeah. we were on the air for that. So there you go, Ben. You bounce back in a big way. You win it four to one over Greg, and now we are all tied up again, seven to seven, after fourteen editions of Famous Dave's Face Off. Man, I wasn't feeling go. good after Greg rolled that first category. Well done, Ben. You just rocked it. You know your yeah. hot dog oh. eating. I do. Can we can we assume now that Austin is the good luck charm for Ben? Like, yeah, maybe get rid of Brett. Maybe Brett makes Ben just feel a lot more comfortable. Or Here's something. the deal: I can I can consistently tie it. I just can never take the lead. Like I let Greg win one or two, and then I fall behind, and I catch back up and tie it, and I just can never I can never get over the hump. That's what I was going to say. That's a good point. You have never had the overall lead against Greg. You've tied it multiple times, but never had the lead. Ugh. Good point. Very good. All right, when we come back, a little tribute to Boyd Epley, the longtime strength and conditioning coach for the Huskers, who retired officially yesterday. We'll do that next. We're back on Sports Highly here on a Wednesday night. Yesterday marked the end of an era for Husker sports with the retirement of Boyd Epley, the, who had been the longtime strength and conditioning coach for the Huskers, left a few years ago and then came back to Nebraska kind of in, in a – advisory capacity, but he has certainly left his mark, not only for Nebraska athletics, but all of weight training for sports really across the globe. Uh, Sat down with Boyd last summer, and we did a podcast titled Building Husker Power, as last year was the 50th anniversary of Husker Power when he first convinced Tom Osborne, who then convinced Bob Devaney to start a weight program. We thought we'd play back part of that podcast from last fall. Boyd Epley is a Nebraska native. He grew up in Beatrice in the 50s, but moved to Phoenix in the fifth grade. The reason? His battle with asthma. The change in climate was thought to be a potential cure. Epley played linebacker on the football team and pole vaulted at Alhambra High School in Northwest Phoenix. In the 60s, coaches actually believed lifting weights would make you slower. But in Arizona, some young athletes had started to experiment. 
As a junior, I only weighed 160 pounds, and I wanted to gain weight, so I went to a health club, and I paid $60 for a two-month deal over the summer, and I got up to 180 pounds. And in the process of lifting weights at the health club, I didn't realize I was learning anything that I would use later in life, but I learned how to put on muscle. I learned how to get stronger. And when you put on muscle, not only get stronger, you get faster. And that was something that most athletes at that period of time in history didn't realize. In high school, Epley vaulted 13 feet, 9 inches, and then attended Phoenix Junior College and set a JUCO national record with a vault higher than 15 feet. That earned him a track and field scholarship back to his home state at the University of Nebraska under head coach Frank Savine. When Epley arrived in Lincoln, he noticed athletes in Nebraska were not doing any sort of weightlifting or strength training. In fact, the athletic department facilities were so minimal and poor that Epley elected to lift weights at the NU Coliseum. Again, the campus rec center and home to the football coaches' offices. So I was a bit of a freak, I suppose, and pretty soon I became the guy to go to if you wanted to learn how to lift the weights. While on the track and field team, Epley suffered an injury pole vaulting. He used strength training to recover, and that's when he started helping football players rehab as well. Epley, just 185 pounds, could bench 400 plus. The football roster didn't have a single player that could surpass 300. Soon after, Osborne was among those who noticed injured football players were not only recovering from injury, they were coming back better than before, all due to what Epley learned from pole vaulting. Having gone to that health club a couple years before and having lifted myself and being a pole vaulter that basically runs 120 feet, well, that's 40 yards, I was trying to make myself faster for 40 yards and put on muscle to be strong enough to bend the pole. And basically, I was doing things that would carry over directly to what a football player needed, get bigger, stronger, and faster. And I learned how to do that on my own. I was not trying to see how much weight I could lift. I was trying to improve my performance. And that's what was unique about it. And as we packaged that and had the football team start doing it, it caught on like wildfire across not only Nebraska, but across the world. Epley got his first break from Osborne. But at his young age, still had a little bit of a problem. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing in those early years, and so it was a lot of uh, trial and error. He did know a couple of things. First, he needed more equipment. Osborne offered his assistance to get the ball rolling and took a list of requests from Epley. And then he turned to me and he said, now we need to go in and see Bob. And I said, Bob, he said, yeah, we need to go get permission to do what we're doing here. Boy, even as a very young man, uh, had a lot of ambition and, and pretty good vision. He uh, talked to Bob Devaney. Bob was a little skeptical because Bob came to an area where uh, weight training and bodybuilding wasn't part of athleticism. Sometimes people feel it got in the way. We went into his uh, office, and here's Bob Devaney in his gigantic red leather chair. You know, most powerful guy in the state of Nebraska. I'm a little bit intimidated, of course. Tom says, Bob, uh, you know Boyd Epley? And, and Bob goes, yeah, I've seen you in the weight room. Yeah, well, you guys up to And Tom says, he thinks we should have the whole team lift weights. Right off the bat, straight, no shooting around, no, no conversations, you know, leading up to it. It's right straight arrow to the heart. 
And Bob says, well, I'm not sure uh, why we'd want to do that. I don't know of anybody that's doing that. My friend Duffy Doherty at Michigan State, a friend of mine, they don't lift weights, and they're real successful. In fact, I don't know of anybody that's lifting weights. Why do we want to do that? And they both looked at me, and I have no idea what I said because my legs were shaking so bad, and I was a nervous wreck. But I remember very clearly what Bob Devaney said to me. He pointed his finger at me, and he said, we're going to give this a try, but if anybody gets slower, you're fired. With the coaches on board, Epley had one last hurdle. He was the same age as the players and would need to convince them that he knew what he was doing. With the help of the chairman of physical education, Carl Weir, he created a strength training course that all players would be required to attend and pass. In fact, the players received credits for the course in this era. The first year's players included Bob Newton, a future All-American and NFL veteran as well as junior college transfers Keith Wertman, Carl Johnson, Dick Rubert. All four were from Arizona or California and had lifted weights previously. They had a background unlike current players on the roster. Newton inclined 300 pounds, one of the toughest lifts. Johnson benched 375. The results were quickly showing in the weight room, and now they hope to see effects on the field. There's a little snippet of the Building Husker Power podcast, part of our Husker Sports Originals podcast, where you can go download those where you find podcasts available to you. Uh, it's a good listen. It's not all that outdated. We did put it together last August and had it right at the start of the football season, which was the 50th anniversary of that conversation that he had with Bob Devaney back in the late 60s. Boyd Epley, uh, an icon in the strength and conditioning field across the globe, not just here in Nebraska, but across the globe greatest games coming up friday night brought to you by the nebraska lottery the gator bowl for the end of the 2014 season the oscars of the georgia bulldogs get together for the second time in a short period of time in bowl games had gone years and gone decades without playing georgia and they oscars have battled them twice in about a four-year period of time where they took them on in the citrus bowl the capital one bowl whatever it was called that that year and then the gator bowl and this one went nebraska's way under a light rain most of the day in jacksonville that'll be your friday night game coming up tomorrow night it's thursday teddy greenstein will join us and we'll have seven on seven headed your way tomorrow i believe teddy's on a little furlough right now but he still said he's gonna make time for us that means we're special <laughs> he is uh he told me he's gonna work on his crappy short game while he was out on the east coast he, yeah, he piled piled the family in the car and they they took a chevy chase vacation from uh from chicago out to the the, the great state of new york so yeah, he said he'll still still have time to squeeze us into his schedule, even though he's on on a bit of a hiatus. Cool, good stuff. Fireworks last night. Were you hearing something going off in your neighborhood? Yeah, they were happening uh, when we were on our family walk, like right right next to us. So that the walk was cut short with fireworks going off with uh, with a baby and a puppy, just not not conducive walking environment yesterday. It's only going to get worse for the next three or four days. Yes. Now that we're in the appropriate month, go nuts. So you're okay now. Sure. July 1st is your it's your go time. You, yeah. you drop the green flag. Yeah. July 1st through the July 4th weekend, go blow your stuff up. Go 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 light <laughs> your money on fire. Oh, very good. All right. Uh, tomorrow, SNBL Game 6 of the World Series. Our stream starts at 11 o'clock. It'll be Austin and I calling the stream tomorrow as we the series shifts back to the Metrodome. That should be fun. Uh, that place gets rocking. See how that thing goes tomorrow, and then we'll be back tomorrow night with another edition of Sports Signing. Good to have, good to play part of that Boyd Epley 
Building Husker Power. Again, that's a great listen if you want to go back and listen to that as you honor a guy who retired yesterday after a long, distinguished service with the University of Nebraska.